Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will pick up the text here in Genesis chapter 19, and we're looking at verses 30 through the end of the chapter in this particular episode, which takes us down through verse 38. And we've been looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the account that leads up to that in this chapter. And it's very sobering, a lot of lessons that we have learned along the way. Verses 1 to 14, God warns his people that he will destroy their world because of its grievous sin. God has, by the way, and we've said this before, but we just want to reiterate it, that God has given us, Christians, the church, who is the steward of the oracles of God, uh, go look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, the end of the chapter there, the, the church is, is really the steward of that, the guardian of the word of God, and he has entrusted to the church, for her safekeeping, the knowledge of what is to come. And God has warned the church and through the church expects these people, you and me, Christians, to go into the world and proclaim the message. God has told us what is going to happen to the world because of its grievous sin. This is what happened uh, in very, very uh, truncated form, abbreviated form here in, in a small way as the angels of the Lord come and warn Lot Lot is a chosen person of God because of his proximity in relation to Abraham, but he is given warning about the coming judgment upon Sodom, his city in which he lives. God has told us what is going to happen to this world. Do not be deceived and think that this world is going to just continue on as is forever. That's not the way it's going to be. And so there's a very real application there. God warns his people that he will destroy their world because of its grievous sin. This world that you and I live in is going to be destroyed because of its grievous sin. God has given us the warning, and we are the stewards of that, and we go and proclaim. We have an ambassadorship, a ministry of reconciliation. We go and proclaim the good news that people can be reconciled to God and have their sins forgiven through Jesus and Jesus alone. But nevertheless, that message is still relevant and true. Then in verses 15 to 22, we see the influence of the world can be alluring to a believer, but it is contemptible to God. Lot wants to hang on to this with all that he can and try and work out a deal for himself to see if he can salvage a little bit. I mean, so uh, so intent is he upon uh, maintaining some vestige of his former life uh, that he doesn't really realize that the magnitude of what is going on. And th that's, that's really sad. It causes us to do a heart check on our own self. Uh, then in verses 23 to 29, God will preserve the righteous from the destruction of their world. And again, we, we spent a great deal of time on this in the previous episode, but Again, in short form, here God preserves Lot and takes him out even as the destruction is falling on the cities around him, Sodom and Gomorrah. 
but those who are chosen and those who are protected by God will be protected from the wrath and the judgment that he brings. Very important distinction there. Again, I just want to reiterate that we're not talking about affliction. We're not talking about persecution by men. That is totally different. And yes, men can do horrible things, but remember what Jesus said to his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10 and some of the synoptic uh, parallels that accompany that. Uh, But he said, don't fear him who can kill the body only. Listen, men have come up with all kinds of awful ways uh, to end human life. That just shows their utter depravity, their hatred for God. But remember, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28 there, do not fear him who can kill the body only, rather fear him who has the power over both the body and the soul to condemn it to hell. Uh, Very, very powerful words. And so we're not talking about just mere suffering in this world. We're literally talking about suffering the judgment of God being poured on the world. And that's not something that God uh, has appointed for those who are his, uh, just as he did not appoint Noah to uh, suffer from his judgment being poured out on the world. You could say, well, Noah was locked up on the ark. Okay, fine. But he didn't suffer. He didn't have to sit there and swim and fight for his life and pass out from swallowing too much water and have divine resuscitation. No, the Lord brought him safely through. Noah was unscathed. But the fact of the matter is, is when he's raining down his fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, he takes a lot out. And there is coming a day when God is going, God, not man, this, and we're not talking World War III, we're not talking anything like that. There is coming a, a day, and I believe it's coming soon, where God is going to bring his wrath and shower it upon the entire world in what Daniel calls the 70th week of Daniel, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the great tribulation, uh, all of those, <laughs> they're all synonymous, talking about the same event. That is the wrath of God coming out uh, upon the whole world. And God has not uh, destined believers to participate in that. He has not appointed believers to suffer his wrath. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9. Again, we go back to Revelation 3.10, the church at Philadelphia. Uh, They will be saved if they persevere and hold to true doctrine and do not compromise sound doctrine and their faith, then God will save them from the the hour of trial and tribulation that is coming upon the world. And so we recognize that. All right, all of that, verses 23 to 29. That brings us to the last pericope of this chapter, verses 30 to 38, and we see this final principle here that those who have grown comfortable in the wicked city may retain its corruption. This is really a very sad, sad account here. Lot has been spared. He has lost his wife, and that is, uh, it's just tragic. Okay, it's tragic. We get this little epitaph at the end, uh, you know, of the previous section, verse 27. We switch away from Lot and his family. And of course, his wife has just died in verse 26. She becomes a pillar of salt. But in verse 27, this is this epitaph because we're tying it back into the previous narrative because God had said he was going to reveal to Abraham what he's doing. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember, one of those men was a Christophany, the angel of the Lord, uh, a pre-incarnate version of Christ. 
And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. That must have been devastating for Abraham to see that God uh, had given him his word that if there were 10 righteous people in the city, he would spare it and not bring his judgment. And as he sees the smoke billowing up from there like the smoke of a furnace, he recognizes that there were not even 10 righteous found. Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Again, he's not doing it for Lot's sake. He's doing it for Abraham's sake. Incredible mercy, grace of the Lord. Now we come to this tragic, tragic uh, ending of this story. And this is where we're going to depart ways with Lot. Unfortunately, it's a sad note to end on, but the scripture gives us the truth. It gives us the cold, hard truth. We don't we don't get to paint people in their best light. Uh, we just see them as they are. And sometimes it's not a pretty picture because we are learning again, and I'll say it again, that those who have grown comfortable in the wicked city and the way of life that it portends, they may retain its corruption. So let's just read the text here and get a sense of this, starting in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. I just want to stop right there and and just make this observation. The angels had told him, yea, commanded him to go into the hills, and then he complained. Remember, I can't go into the hills. You know, this is going to overtake me. Let me live here. He wants to live in this city. I find it a little humorous that that his petition is granted. It's not right. It's not godly. It's not born out of a right heart, (laughs) but his petition is granted. And now he doesn't want to live there. And where does he end up? He ends up right where the angels tell him to go, which is in the hills, which is where he was supposed to go. But that also means that Zoar was supposed to be destroyed, which I think we get a little bit of an insight that Lot kind of knew because it says that he was afraid to live there. Uh, yeah, this was part of the original destruction plan. I, I don't think I want to be here anymore. So I, I find that a little bit humorous. I, I think there's some humor in the scripture. So then he goes and he lives in a cave with his two daughters. Now it's just downhill from here. Verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us as, after the manner of all the earth. Ah, uh, you know, interjection here. This isn't true, right? Uh, Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Uh, So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Okay, just by way of just commentary here, the statement that I alone am left and there is no other uh, or something like that, has kind of received a label. This is We're talking about the Elijah syndrome. Remember when Elijah is fleeing uh, from Ahab and 
he feels like he's the only one left. And so he cries out to the Lord, behold, I, I alone am left and Ahab is going to kill me and that's it. And then God reveals to him, ah, well, not, not so. I mean, I've, I got several thousand here who have not bowed the knee. Um, but you know, you can go ahead with your pity party, right? <laughs> so, and, and even before the Elijah syndrome, we see this with the daughters of Lot. I mean, this is just an absolute lie. There's no, um, there's no basis for this. Uh, this isn't the entire world that has been destroyed. I mean, uh, just think about it logically, right? Verse 31, our father's old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Okay. Uh, that can't be true just from the standpoint that you know, you were in Zoar for a little bit and then you left. Zoar wasn't destroyed. So there are men there. And you have no idea if the scope of this judgment was worldwide, but you know, it couldn't be completely global. Why? Because you're still there living in the cave, right? I mean, there's that problem. So th- there's no basis for this uh, statement. It's it's really, uh, it's, it's not true. Uh, there's no basis in fact. Come, let us make our father drink wine. We will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Just a commentary on this very quickly, just an observation. Again, when the scriptures talk about laying with somebody, it is uh, it is a way uh, for the scripture to talk about something without getting too graphic, but we all know what it means, okay? And so, uh, you, you know, just as the scripture uses the term to know, to lay with somebody doesn't mean I'm just falling asleep and somebody else is falling asleep and we're in the same room. Uh, clearly, we're talking about, you know, intercourse here. And, and that becomes obvious with the rest of the text that we may preserve offspring from our father. Well, now, how would that be? I mean, to, to, for, for a woman to have offspring must mean that she must experience intercourse. And we know biologically how that happens. And they're saying we want offspring. There's no men left. They think that their father is the only one. And they say that we're going to get our offspring from our father. I mean, there is no getting around what this means. And so I just want to again point out that when it talks about laying down with somebody, we understand the scripture as it's presented. This is what a grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic does. And we take language as it is intended. And so very clearly here, uh, we, we see what is intended. And then it goes on and says it, you know, this is their intention. Verse 33, they made their father drink wine that night. What happens when you drink a lot of wine? You become controlled by it, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you lose sense of things. And he has no idea when she lays down or when she arises, which means he has no memory. He is so inebriated. He has no memory of any of these events. And, and then it happens again and we get the same formula Clearly, we know what is being talked about here. So that's really important. But we see this, that those who have grown comfortable in a wicked city may retain its corruption. This kind of, like I said, is the end of Lot, but we see the corruption maintained through the legacy that he unknowingly, unwittingly, involuntarily gives through his daughters. And this is their legacy. This is the last we'll hear of them. We never even get their names, but we know the names of their sons and it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Why does this happen? This happens because of the city they lived in, namely Sodom, because of the perversion of sexual morality, 
and and the compromises that have been made, they have not been taught the ways of righteousness. Maybe Lot's righteous soul was vexed, but clearly he was not able to communicate that to the same degree to either his wife or to his daughters so that they are willing to commit this sin. And the result of this sin is going to plague Israel for generations, generations. Okay, it's hard to emphasize this enough. The firstborn bore a son called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. You've probably heard of that. The younger has a son, Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites. We're talking about the Moabites and the Ammonites. They are going to plague Israel for generations. They are going to be the enemies of God's people, along with some of the descendants of Ishmael, you know, a lot of the ites, you know, come out of his line, but now not only from Ishmael, but Abraham's other side of the family from his nephew, specifically more enemies to come and deal with the, you know, the descendants of his son that he's going to have. It's, it's really tragic. The Moabites are the enemies of God's people. Finally, in the book of Isaiah, so Isaiah takes place around the year 600, somewhere around there, B.C., you know, this is a long time later. Uh, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 15, verse one, they will be laid waste. He's talking about the Moabites in a single day. So, you know, there's great sin during Isaiah's day, uh, the lamentation and, you know, everything over what had happened because of the Moabites or at the hand of the Moabites has really reached its its climax and you know culminated in this so much so that God finally tells the nation of Israel through Isaiah that the entire people of Moab will be wiped off the earth in one day. I mean that's incredible. Isaiah 15 verse 1. What what about the Ammonites? They are also the enemies of God's people. And uh you know we we read this Deuteronomy chapter 2 Verses 20 and 21, it is also counted as land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumin, a great people, uh, great in many, as tall as the Anakim. This is the Zamzumin, uh, the name that the Ammonites gave them. And the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. So he gives the Ammonites victory. They dispossess them. Then we jump ahead to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. They're banned. Very important to understand. They are enemies of God. So even though they can claim lineage to Abraham through his nephew Lot, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. Jump ahead to the book of Joshua, chapter 13, verse 25. Their territory was Jazer and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites to Aurora, which is east of Rabaha or Rabbah. Then jumping ahead to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 10, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a pattern in the book of Judges and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, listen to that, and the gods of the Ammonites. This is Judges chapter 10, verse six, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the pattern of judges at that point is that God is going to give them into the hands of these very people so that they uh, can be judged in that way first, according to their sin as punishment, and then he will send a judge to deliver them. Okay. 
the Ammonites here come into play in the account of Jephthah. Do you remember Jephthah the Gileadite? Remember his tragic vow where he says, if the Lord would give me victory, I will give him the first thing that comes out of my doors to greet me upon my return. That's Judges chapter 11, 30 to 31. Well, who is Jephthah fighting? Well, read verse 32 of Judges 11. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel, but they weren't They weren't fully defeated. They were just subdued. We find them again when Saul goes out to battle uh, the people of of Ammon, the Ammonites, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, and in verse 11. He doesn't have full and complete victory. So David goes to war with them in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8 and following. And in fact, this is interesting when David, just kind of connecting the scriptures here, when David commits the sin of murder, by murdering Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. Remember all that? Guess who they're at war with? <laughs> they're at war with the Ammonites. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Joab fights the Ammonites. 2 Samuel 12, verse 26. Solomon takes one of his numerous wives. Remember all the wives that Solomon had? And this is against the commandment of the Lord. Some of his numerous wives are from Ammon. Wow. First Kings chapter 11, verse one, this comes back to bite him and ensnare him, right? First Kings chapter 11, verse five, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth. This is because the hearts of his, his heart was turned because of his wives, right? So first Kings chapter 11, verse five, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Oh, okay. So now his heart is turned towards idolatry, but then he takes it a step further. And I just want to bring this all kind of to bear for you in culmination to see just how disastrous this decision was and the effects of our choice not to fight sin as Lot did not communicate to his children, didn't fight it enough in his own life, uh, potentially, right? This is a serious warning to us. If that weren't bad enough, Right? We've probably all heard of sacrificing our children to Molech or a phrase like that with regards to the abortion debate today. I don't think it's much of a debate. If you are a Christian and you follow the word of God and that sets your worldview and, and your theology and your view of life, right? Then, then there's no debate in this. But we have a group of people who think it's okay to murder, right? And so they get lumped in with these people who sacrifice their children to Molech because the scripture talks about that. Well, we hear about Molech, right? And, and all of that, we hear about that in first Kings chapter 11, same chapter that we're talking about Solomon and his many wives, some of whom are from Amnon or Ammon, right? And we already heard about this one, uh, abomination of the Ammonites, Milcom, But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7, all because Solomon disobeyed the command of the Lord, we read this. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh 
the abomination of Moab. So there, there's an abomination of Moab. Then he builds a high place for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. You know how the worship of Molech was introduced to the nation of Israel. It was because of Solomon and his idolatrous heart going after somebody who shouldn't even exist because of the sin of Lot not communicating the righteous decrees and commandments of God to his own family so that his daughters went in and committed acts of abomination before the Lord with their own father to produce offspring for themselves. This is absolutely egregious, and it could have been prevented. Now, God and his sovereignty knows, but they are going to come back and plague the nation of Israel over and over and over and over, not just as they're conquering the land, but we've seen it now through the kings. We've seen it all the way through Solomon. It's going to continue through Ezra, through Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in charge of, of the con- reconstruction or the construction of the second temple. It's going to carry on through Jeremiah. Jeremiah has much to say about the Ammonites. So does the prophet Ezekiel. And the last place we find them in the scriptures is with a prophecy that comes from the book of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah has some sobering words for both of these people groups who are descendants of Lot through his sin and the sin of his daughters. We read this in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. I find it absolutely fascinating that the very last thing we read about the Moabites and the Ammonites in the Old Testament comes from this minor prophet, Zephaniah, and he links them back to the, to the sin and the cities that produced them. Think about that. Moab shall become like Sodom. Sodom was overthrown by the judgment of God for their wicked sexual sin. And the Ammonites will be overthrown and destroyed like Gomorrah, who was overthrown for their wicked sexual sin and deviation. And the daughters of Lot who survived, their mother died because she looked back. The daughters deceived themselves, spoke untruth, did not turn to the Lord and trust him, did not seek out the face of God in their lives and chose rather to act in their own corrupt wisdom, which was clearly tainted by the societies from which they had just exited. And it produced these people who will see the same destruction. It's absolutely mind boggling. And to happen Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, only the Lord could bring that out. Now, what does that say for all of us? Well, we've gone long here, but those who've grown comfortable in the wicked city may retain its corruption. Listen, I think that this chapter must serve as a heart check. It has to. We know that we're protected. 
but especially points two and four of this chapter. Points two, you know, point two is verses 15 to 22. The influence of the world can be alluring to a believer, but it's still contemptible to God. And this last one, that those who have grown comfortable in the wicked city may retain its corruption. They kind of are saying the same thing a little bit. Or there's, there's a little bit of an overlap there. It causes us to do some serious introspection. And it should drive us to the throne of grace and say, Lord, search my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. I do not want to retain the influence of the world in my life. I do not want to grow comfortable with the immorality and the godless practice of those around me. Not only should we spend time in prayer asking the Lord to do that, but we should go to the word of God then so that we can inform on our life and say, yes, Lord, this is what I want my life to be like. I want my life to be in conformity to your word. So that when I read an account like this, I don't want to become like Lot and his daughters. No, I want, I want to become like Abraham, <laughs> right? Help me, Lord, not to become so calloused that I would harden my heart against sin and not see it for how you see it. Help me, Lord, to, to call evil what you call evil, to call good what you call good. Those are the things that I need to do in my life. And that is my prayer for you and for me as we leave this sobering passage here with this episode. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.